Well, good morning. Welcome to Parkwood this morning. I hope you got your Bibles. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 as we pick back up where we left off in our expositional study through the book of 2 Peter. We're almost done this Sunday and next Sunday, and we'll have 2 Peter finished, and then we're going to move from there into Galatians and look at it verse by verse. I'm really excited about that. A couple things you should have with you this morning, sermon notes back in front, and also just an info guide that talks about what's going on over the next couple weeks in the life and body of Parkwood. Uh, one thing that's going on, I want to just mention it quickly, is deacon nominations. And so if you see some servant leaders among us, we've already had a, a couple of names turned in. And please, please do that. We need more servant leaders among us. Remember, deacons do not do the work. Deacons model what it looks like to serve God's people. It's because we all serve God's people. And uh, so just keep that in mind. There's plenty of, of deacons among us. I have a, I have a laundry list that I, that I know that, that just have faithfully served. And so please help us with that. Second Peter 3. Got a lot of truth. Is probably think that, I think that every week. I look at the text. I'm like, man, there's so much here. So let's stand to our feet in honor of God's word. 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their, their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come, should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Lord, this is your word. Speak through your, through your servant now, Lord. Speak to your people. Lord, we confess on the front end of this that we cannot begin to mind the depths of your word this morning. But may we not miss the main point for you wrote this to comfort your people. So Lord, I pray this morning that your word would comfort, it would strengthen, it would reorient us. In Jesus' name, you be seated. 
As I thought about how to begin the message, just to sort of orient all, all of us on the same page this morning, I sort of want to point you in the direction I want to end up at the end. You know, one, one day in Matthew 9, verses 35 to 36, Jesus was hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. People ask him, why? Not a bad question, given I was thinking about us. We just celebrated our three-year anniversary. That was the length of Jesus' work in ministry. He had three years, and yet he's spending time with, with those who sell their body for profit and who cheat their own people. Why would you spend time with them? Jesus is going to teach us something at the end of the lesson about where's his sheep? Are they just sitting here this morning? It's all God's sheep sitting in a building this morning. Why is Jesus not returned? Here's one of our questions. It's what the scoffers are going to say this morning. And live long enough, you're going to ask that question too. When's he going to come back? We get this clearest picture in Scripture of how God relates to his, pit, his people is that he is a shepherd and we are his sheep. This is who Peter is encouraging this morning in the context. Look at verse 1. He says, I am writing to you who? who, what is it, who does, how does he call these people? Beloved. Calls them beloved again in verse 8. And then if you flip back to chapter 1, verse 17, when he's talking about the transfiguration, you remember how the Father relates to the Son. This is my beloved Son. And so this morning, the context is everything to understand the text. He's speaking to God's people. He's comforting the beloved. He begins with comfort in chapter 1, and he, now he's ending with comfort in chapter 3. Peter has a shepherding heart. And sometimes that doesn't sound comforting. Sometimes shepherds have to, to be rather stern. Sometimes they have to protect. Sometimes they have to warn. If you, was, if you didn't hear chapter 2's message, you might want to go back online and listen to it. He was being very clear. But he was doing it for the sake of a pastor protecting his people. Here's what Peter knows and God knows. The longer Jesus tarries, the more we are likely to become discouraged. Especially in lieu of the context of this, it's the same context as us, that not only do the false teachers are outside of us, that false teachers come from within us. They sit beside us on the pews. And over, as the longer Jesus tarries, we can have our feet knocked out from under us. So this morning we want to ask the question, how do we know Christ will return? I want you to see that Peter makes a very clear declaration. We know he returns because God promises it. We even know that he returns because people grow more and more to mock it. And we know that he's going to return because his character proves it. And so let's look first. Look at verse 1 and 2. God's word promises it. It says, this now is the second letter that I'm writing to, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring you up your sincere mind by way of reminder. 
This reminds me of what he's doing here. It's like riding a bull. So what's the point of for that cowboy sitting on the back of that bull when he's riding? Don't let go. Matter of fact, what happens? Not only if you don't let go, what happens if you just loosen your grip just a little bit? It's going to have catastrophic effects. And so he's reminding God's people. He said, I've written you two letters. The way he's... He says this, these two letters are most likely in very close succession to each other. I've written you two letters by way of reminder. Sincere mind, right thinking, pure mind. I want to remind you to make sure you, you are thinking correctly. So why do we need to be reminded of the Lord's return? Don't we all believe it? Well, it might surprise you, but the point is, the people inside the church then, and it was only going to get worse, were not believing it. They were not. They were making fun of it. Said so you need to make sure that just in the everyday heart of life, you don't become discouraged and begin to drink the Kool-Aid the world's selling. Because listen, they sell it inside the church today. And people are drinking it. So we need to write our thinking. What do we need to be reminded of? Look at verse 2. The predictions and commandments that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's already hit this pretty hard in chapter 1, 16 to 21. Do you remember that God's word is not only the prophets who have foretold what was coming, but God's word has spoke through the apostles and both are equally God's word. And both this morning is what he's saying. Both of them verify the future coming of the Lord. Turn with me to Acts 3. You'll see this is simply part of their preaching. Peter preached it at Pentecost. Acts 3, verse 17. It says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of the of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, that your sins may be blotted out, that a time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Listen to this, I thought it was interesting. 23 out of the 27 books in the New Testament explicitly reference Jesus' return, and two others allude to it. Only Philemon and 3 John don't mention it. 260 chapters in the New Testament. And in those 260 chapters, the second coming is referenced 300 times. The Bible's clear. Jesus is coming. It says it over and over again. But he doesn't just say Jesus is coming. He also puts, you see that word, commandments? Peter's connecting something here. That it's not only our, that our hope of His coming affects how we live in the other day. Commandments are simply the moral norms of an expected believer. That as our expectation for Christ's returns grow, as our confidence grows, so does our holiness before our God. He's saying these two things can't be disconnected. But see, they were disconnected for, for the false teachers. They were completely disconnected. They were saying, Christ is not coming and we can live however we want. Besides, God's grace will just keep flowing, right? 
This was what? And so what did this cause? Cause doubt. So how do we know Christ is coming? God promises it. And yet we need to be prepared for something this morning. God's enemies are going to mock it. Look at this, verse 3. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. You ever heard that phrase, haters going to hate? Everybody likes to use it. You know, once something gets popular, everybody starts using it. But what's the point? Why do people say that? What are they implying by that? They're saying in, oftentimes criticism says more about the critic than it does the person being criticized. That's what they're saying. Haters are going to hate. So if you think, what are they saying? They're saying you can look at the person. So he says, this is what Peter's saying. He said, first of all, you need to understand something. In the last days, scoffers are going to increase. So what are the last days? The last days are between the resurrection and ascension of Christ and his return. That's the last days. So they were in the last days. We are in the last days. And who are the mockers? He's already belabored that point. These are the false teachers that are inside the church and are only going to get worse as Christ gets closer. You need to understand, quit throwing rocks outside to the people. And we got a, we got a clean house inside of God's church. This is where the problem lies. It's nothing new. Jesus said this was going to happen. Matthew 24, verse 3. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and his disciples come to him and they say, Hey, tell us a secret. Tell us about the signs of your coming and the end of the age. Look at verse 5. It says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and lead many astray. Jesus said it's going to happen. Jude 18 says, In the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. Remember, Jude, 2 Peter, dealing with the exact same problems, probably writing to the same people. It's going to get worse. Peter said it's coming, it's going to get worse. Jude said it's worse, it's here. Scoffers are here, they're mocking. What's their motive? You see, they have a motivation. In other words, people who deny the moral law, people who deny Scripture, people who deny there's got to have a motivation. There is an agenda here. Look at verse 3. They're following their own sinful desires. So why do they not want Christ to return? Because they don't want to be held accountable. They want to do what they want to do. What do they want to do? They want to indulge in their own sinful desires. That's what they want to do. And so what is he saying? Listen, church, it is not their amazing intellect. It is their moral depravity that's driving this question. This is what he's saying. He returns to these two themes. Skepticism of Christ's return and a contempt for holiness, and he ties them together. Simply, You're simply seeing their motivation. Their agenda is their own sinful desires, but their mocking hurts. Yes, sticks and stones hurts, but words really, really hurt. And here is their hurt. Here's what they're saying. You see it? Where's the promise of his coming? In other words, Grandpa believed he was coming back. He's dead. Daddy believed he's coming back. Now he's dead, and here you are. He's, where is he? I don't see him. Do you see him? You see the scoffing. This is what? I, I don't see him. He's not coming back. These first believers that believe this, they're starting to die off, and he hasn't returned. There's nothing new under the sun. God's enemies always say this. Psalm 79, 10. 
The nations say, where is their God? Micah 7, 10. Then my enemies will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? Malachi 2, 17 says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, answer, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by saying, where is the God of justice? But look at their argument. It's based on a false assumption. A false assumption. Look at the end of verse 4. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So this is their assumption. Every argument is based on an assumption. You've got to understand what that assumption is. What's their assumption? There's nothing ever changed. Nothing changes. We lived in a closed system... An orderly closed system that's governed and bound by certain laws of nature. That's what they're saying. Nothing's ever changed. So, Christ is not going to come. Christ can't come. Because our world is governed by these laws. It's not going to happen. Miracles, you've got to be kidding me. This is the scoffing. What he's saying is you can tell something about the haters by looking at their actions. Actions reveal character. And if that's true, then shouldn't we be able to look at God and say, what is his character? Not by what he just promises that he's going to do. I want you to see this morning. This is Peter's whole argument. We can tell what God's going to do by what he has done. All you have to do is look. And so, how do we know he's going to return? He promises it. How do we know he's going to return? His enemies mock it, and they will increase. But listen, God's nature supports it. Look at verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. In other words, God is sovereign. He's sovereign. God has sovereignly manipulated His creation in the past, and He's going to do it in the future. He does what He pleases. He accomplishes His purpose. This is foundational. He spends most of His time on this issue of sovereignty here because it is foundational for all the other reminders. In other words, His mercy means nothing if you don't understand His sovereignty. You will simply presume it. It is the thing that the false teachers are intentionally forgetting. Don't you just love that? Intentionally forgetting. Look at that. Verse 5. They deliberately overlook. This is like... I'm not going to use my own kids because they, get, they really hate it when a preacher does that. Johnny. Johnny. Will you... Will you Unload the dishwasher. Will you fold the clothes? Two hours later, they laid wherever they were. We usually just lay them on the couch. They're laid all over the place. What? What happened? I, I did what? Forgot. This is what he's saying. You, they deliberately forget. Intentional. This is intentional. What exactly are they forgetting? They are forgetting two things that's happened in the past. God took chaos and brought it to order, and God took order and brought it to chaos, and He did it inside of this creation. 
He intervened. You see, the scoffers mistake that the laws of nature are God's laws. They're God's. We discover them. We do not create them. They're His laws. And He can intervene if He wants to. And He's already done it. Look at verse 5. Through the water, by the Word of God. You see, the Word of God is everything. It's been everything in his reminder of the two letters. Everything happens to the Word of God. Ultimately, Peter wants them to understand that the Word of God is unstoppable. So you have this picture of a water-filled cosmos. And God intervenes and begins to separate atmosphere, ocean, Dry land from the water. He forms it. He fills it. And He does it all with purpose. That's what God has done. He brought chaos to order. Listen. Important this morning. This should be comforting. Before there was a man that willed anything, there was a God that willed everything. That's comforting to you this morning. Your will is not sovereign. God says. This is our hope. When God says, I will return, it is the same God that of His own will spoke everything into creation. Psalms 115, 2 and 3, the nations say, where is your God? Our answer is verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Amen. That's the God we serve. That's our God that's going to return. He took it from chaos to order, and He took His creation and took it to uncreation. He did it in verse 6. He reminds them. And that by means of this, the world and then existed was deluged with water and perished. He said, by the same word, they brought order to chaos, uncreated everything with that water. Forty days, forty nights, 150 days, things were covered with, and everything perished that God didn't have mercy on. This is what he's done. So make no mistake, Psalms 135, 6 and 7 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from the storehouses. He is reminding God's people, don't forget what he's already done. He created by His Word, and He destroyed by His Word, and He will do it again. God created, He uncreated, and then what happened after the flood? He recreated. Animals came out of the ark, the people He preserved, and they repopulated the earth. He recreated. He said, this is going to happen again. By the same, verse 7, by the same Word, the heavens and the earth now existed, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, and the destruction of the ungodly. You see, he won't use water again. Why? Because his word has promised that he won't. Here's what he promises this morning. We need to pay attention. He will use fire the next time. He will come again. And when he does, his justice and his judgment comes with him. God is sovereign. But he's also saying in verse 8 too, God is timeless. So how do we know Christ has returned? His nature has proved it. He proves it by His sovereign intervention into the creation. And He also 
We need to understand something about his second coming. God is timeless. In other words, verse 8 says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. He's taking this most likely from Psalms 90 verse 4. This says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it passes, or as the watch in the night. A thousand years is simply a long period of time. Marking time is irrelevant to a transcendent God that is beyond that which He creates. He's not bound by what He creates. He holds that which He creates. So they're saying this. God's not bound by that which He has created. He's over. He's outside of time. He marks yesterday, today, and a 2,000 years from now are, are the same to a God that is timeless. Here we see Peter saying Christ is coming, but what does he not do? He never puts a date on it. He's perfectly fine living with, living with the tension of the, both the imminent return of Christ, but not knowing when Christ will return. God is timeless. He's not bound by what He creates because He is sovereign. He creates all things and holds all things. But listen, to this amazing bigness, now if you didn't feel it, even in God's timelessness expresses God's omniscience, His all-knowingness, and, and His omnipotence, His all-powerfulness, His omnipresence, that He's everywhere. You feel how big God is? You should. Now look at this in verse 9. God is merciful. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all reach repentance. The scoffers are asking, why hasn't He returned? Peter wants to comfort God's children with God's character. Your God is sovereign. Your God is not in a hurry. Your God has purpose for everything that He does. But listen, you need to understand something this morning. God is merciful. Look, remember this. If, if you want to really be comforted by verse 9 that we quote all the time, you got to understand who's he talking to. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people outside the church? He's talking to lost people? No, he's talking to you. Look at what he says. The Lord is not slow to tell but is patient towards who? You. He's men. He means with this verse to comfort his tired, beaten up, mocked children. You need to remember, he is not slow about his promises. Habakkuk. I bet you didn't know your pastor was going to tell you to go to Habakkuk this morning, did you? Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. God's people are suffering under the judgment hand of God for their sin. And the, and the prophet's crying out to God. and saying, God, you've promised you're going to deliver your people. When's it going to happen? God, your people are dying. We're dying here, God. When are you going to show up? When are you going to fulfill your promises? Verse 3. God speaking. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. 
Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. How do I know I can trust the promises of God? Look at verse 9. He is patient toward you. That's how we know we can trust him. Do you remember? The God that spoke everything into being stooped down in the dirt and created, formed, fashioned man and leaned down with his kissing breath and breathed life into his soul. God is sovereign, but God is merciful. This is a picture of our God. This is your God. He has been patient towards you. This is his actions. This is his character that has not changed. Exodus 34 Verse 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God considers His long-suffering nature so important that He requires it of His children. Our God is long-suffering. Our God is patient. So we should be patient. Quote, one cannot properly claim to follow a father who is patient and slow to anger if one is herself impatient and quick to anger. It says here that God is not wishing that any should perish. The word perish is connected to eternal judgment. It's also connected to the word repent. And let, in other words, if you don't repent, you will perish. That's the gospel. There is no gospel outside of repentance. There is no eternal life. Eternal life comes through repenting. God's not wishing. The word wishing should never be interpreted. That God's a wishing like a child wishes for a new bike for Christmas, not sure whether he's going to get it. This is talking about a will. This is a desire. This is a purpose. That's what it means. This is a conscious choice in which God desires that not one person should perish, but under his judgment, but that all would come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says the same thing. I want to be clear here before I move. I wish I could spend more time, but I want to be clear. There is a debate in this verse. And if you've never really thought about it, don't worry about it now. But if you have thought about it, I want to make sure. So what is this saying, this word wish, this word will? Does this teach that God's sovereign will is that none perish? And yet we know that man does perish. The wide gate, the narrow gate, who goes through, how many goes through which gate? Scripture says more goes through the wide gate. So is that one? We're going to circle one of these in our minds. I'm going to give you three. There's probably four. I'm going to give you three. Does this express God's disposition? That it pleases him that all people might repent and not perish. Or number three, does this give to God's church a firm promise that none of God's children He has chosen will perish? You're going to circle one of them, but listen. To debate this in this verse right now misses the point of God's mercy. This is what He's comforting God's people with. His mercy. Quote, It is better to live with the tension and mystery of the text than to swallow it up in a philosophical system that pretends to understand all of God's ways. God's patience and His love are not illusions, but neither does they, do they remove His sovereignty. In other words, I was saved in 1978. Wonder if Christ would have turned in 1977. 
God is patient. Listen, if he would have returned in 1977, he would have done me no wrong. God is sovereign and he is merciful. And yet, we are living proof of the mercy of God. We are living proof. Church, God has been patient toward you. That's comforting this morning as we wait. But make no mistake. Verse 10 is here for a reason. But the day of the Lord will come. Why? Because God is just. We'll talk about more of this next week, but I want you to see this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. The day of the Lord. This closes a loop that began in chapter 2, verse 3. When he said of the false teachers, they are condemned and they are being kept until the time of judgment. This is the time. It is the day of the Lord. He's speaking of eternal judgment. And he says two things I want you to see quickly this morning. God's justice will be unexpected. That's what he means when he says it will come like a thief. We had a little string where I live, around Crowder's Mountain, where guys busting the people's windows out and grabbing things that they see in the car, you know. It happens. Nobody's expecting that when you get up that morning and your wind... Your window's busted out and your car's been broken into. It's unexpected. Christ is a justice. God's justice when he comes is going to look like Revelation 16, 15, where he warns us, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. I am coming a time that you are not expecting. That's why he tells us as believers to be ready. says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and it will pass away. He gives us a picture here that, that is nowhere else in Scripture, but that helps everything else that we read in Scripture make more sense that God's justice will be both dramatic and catastrophic. He uses this picture of that everything being burned up and dissolved. Now with that in your mind, think about Matthew 24, 29. When Jesus says the heavens and the earth will pass away, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, powers in the heavens will be shaken. Luke 21, 25 says there will be signs in the sun, moon, and the stars, and on earth distress of nations in perplexity. Something when the day of the Lord comes, it will be catastrophic. There will be no mistake. So don't miss this. Scripture describes a day that is not just God disrupting the universe, but utterly destroying it. That's what he's describing here. The heavens will pass away with a roar. This is very colorful language. They could look like anything. Remind us we hear the trumpet sounding, a voice crying. This word can mean like thunder, like a whip, like a rushing water. There's going to be unmistakable Everything will be burned up and destroyed. Fire is the picture of judgment all through the Old Testament. Here's the point. It's not just that the creation 
is going to be destroyed. It is that the ungodly works will be exposed. The Old Testament speaks of a time when God's judgment is going to lay bare the works of man. You stand under the covering of Christ and His righteousness, or one day you will stand in your own righteousness and the very motivations of your heart will be exposed. This is the day of the Lord. And it's coming. And so He tells God's people, get your heads up out of your circumstances this morning. And look at God, His promises, His character of what He's done in the past. His promises of what He's going to do in the future. And don't give up. Are you longing this morning for Christ's return? Are you longing for it when you see the news? See, teachers taking advantage of their students. I see grown men hurting three and four-year-old children. I see people shooting and killing each other. Does it not make us long? Does, do we not all sometimes say, when, Lord, will what is wrong be made right? We long for this day when our world trashes what we treasure. But brothers and sisters, this morning the word of God is clear. The nature of God can't be mistaken. Christ will return. Chapter 1, verse 14 says, He's given us very great promises. Look with me at 2 Peter 3.13. We'll look at this again next week. I just want you to see it. It says, But according to this promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So I don't want you leaving you thinking that God is going to show up and destroy everything. He will destroy the old, but He will bring the new. And when He brings the new, it will be a place where righteousness, in other words, justice, reigns supreme. This is His promises. How do I wait patiently this morning? Wish I had more time to talk about this. It so impacted me this morning. Thinking about our Lord as a shepherd. How, what am I supposed to do as I wait? God never says that He was going to take out the hard. And we know from our own reality that's true. Look with me at Luke 15, 4-7. I alluded to this earlier. When Jesus was asked, why do you waste your time with these tax collectors? These prostitutes and thieves. Look with me at Luke 15, 4. This is how he answered that question of why. Three years I've got. What am I going to spend my time doing? What man of you, verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep? If he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine person who needs no repentance. Why was he spending time with the prostitutes and the thieves? That's where God's lost sheep were. That's what he's saying. This is how we wait. We wait the same way our Lord waited. We actively wait. 
This is what he's saying in John 10, verses 1 to 4. Do you remember that picture? It's a picture of shepherds who had different folds. They bring all their folds into this one giant corral. And they go get something to eat. And when they come back, they walk in the gate. And they call for their sheep. And what do their sheep do? They hear. And they follow. How do we wait? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the, by the door but climbs over in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls them by their name and he leads them out. The sheep follow him and they know his voice. This is the promise, brothers and sisters. We are to actively wait, going with the gospel. And this is the promise. God's sheep will hear it and they will follow. That's good news this morning. When you get on a plane and go somewhere, or when you go into your workplace and share the gospel, God has sheep and they're lost. And we are his messengers. Look at this. Verse 14, John 10, 14. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Listen to this. This is how we wait. This is what we have to have in our mind. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. He says, other sheep are not in the fold yet, but they will be. They will be. One flock. One shepherd. All gathered. Never forget, brothers and sisters, you were a lost sheep. How do we wait? We wait with this. He has not come, so we are not done. 1 Peter 2, 19-25 guarantees this. If you're going to go out and declare the gospel to lost sheep, you better expect some suffering because it's going to come. Why does it come? Because our Lord suffered and left us an example of how we should follow. Verse 25 reminds us, and I remind you as we close, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. I commend to you the promise of 2 Peter. That God will gather His sheep into one fold. And when they are gathered together, He will come. And He will come and gather His children to Himself. This is a promise for Him. And until He, as long as He has not come, we aren't done with the mission of God. And we must labor together, basing our work on the unchanging character of God and the sure promises of His Word that He will gather His own to Himself and we comfort ourselves with these words, no matter how hard it gets, no matter what suffering it brings, no matter what it costs me, because it's worth it that we all get to sit around one day and praise our Lord in eternity and serve Him together. This is the promise of Scripture. This is the comfort for God's people. So God, comfort your people with your word. Oh God, that we would have had another hour to think about this. Thank you. There's always a time we can gather together with your people. I thank you for your growth groups that will meet and talk about this. 
Lord, though we studied every day, 24 hours a day, we can never mind the depths of your own character, of the promises of your word. So, Lord, now we respond. And it is my prayer that with a sincere mind and a sincere heart, this song will be the praise that comes from our heart. And if it is not that you would bring repentance in the house of God today and that you would call more sheep into your fold. We trust you, Lord. We love you. We thank you that you are both sovereign and gracious, both all-powerful and merciful, and that we can trust you. In Jesus' name, stand with us and let's worship together.